Hello and welcome to the podcast series, Narcissism Revealed with Dr. Provo. Greetings to all of my listeners, not only around the U.S., but around the globe. With that said, let's tune in to the next episode and welcome our special guest. Hello, listeners. Now we're back for the second part of me and my narcissistic pastor mother. So we did part one with our special guest uh, and she called herself Jane Doe. And I'm so grateful that she's willing to come and talk to all of us in this country and abroad and to disclose what debilitating disease she has had and that she still struggles with today. So I'm going to let her tell you about it and some of the things that she's doing, some of the obstacles that she's overcome, and just how her life is getting better and better. It's been slow, but she is getting better. So Jane Doe, we're welcoming you back. And why don't you start with telling us what it is that you have been struggling with? Thank you for having me return. Um, I have a um, debilitating... um, illness that was caused by a cervical lumbar injury and it's called dystonia uh-huh and it comes from you said some lumbar yes it can sometimes dystonia is an involuntary movement disorder uh-huh. that affects the nerves and the muscles uh-huh. and it sometimes can be mistaken as other um, illnesses um, sometimes dystonia could be hereditary brought from a, a serious injury brain injury, spinal injury. It's multiple um, things where a person that can develop dystonia, but there's different types of dystonia that a person um, can develop. And yours was brought on particularly by what? I sustained a cervical and lumbar injury. Okay. Cervical and lumbar. That's what I was looking for. Okay. Go ahead and tell the audience what happened. Um, I started um, becoming debilitated a little after my injury, I went through all the physical therapy and it wasn't as a severe injury. Later on, I started to um, lose mobility with walking. Um, it started to affect the left side where I would experience, they look like grandma seizures, uh-huh. but it actually was later determined to be an involuntary movement disorder. It would okay. affect my walking, it affect my speech, sometimes my vision, the ability to speak. After my diagnosis, proper diagnosis, five years later, I um, was able to um, become part of the Dystonia Foundation in Minnesota. Um, so, so I just wanted to make that clear to the audience too. This is so rare that they spent five years misdiagnosing you. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to reach out to people all over the world who have this type of ailment that were survivors. Some of them were born with it. Some of them developed it later in their adolescent years and the struggles and challenges that they had with it. That was the best thing that could have happened to me Uh was the um, people that I reached out to from the Dystonia Foundation. And I still keep in contact with the Dystonia Foundation. Uh And I was also in their magazine. Oh, great. Well, again, congratulations. I'm proud of you. And I always let you know that. And I know part of... uh, what you were dealing with when you kind of dropped off the map, you you would be in the hospital a lot. Yes. And you would be unable to walk. I know you lost your driver's license 
Um, so tell the audience some of the specifics, some of the examples of, because uh, you were still all alone and no one came even after this diagnosis. Tell yeah. us about some of the things that happened to you. Um, I became homeless behind it um, because due to the diagnosis was so rare and it was a diagnosis that was a hard diagnosis that people didn't really know how to handle my handle the diagnosis. And I was in and out of the hospital with a temporary fix. Then I was released, then it, it would start all over again. Um, I would start losing the ability to speak, to write, to see, to walk. And I would even became impaired in different parts of my body. They thought I had multiple sclerosis. They thought I had a stroke. And so then the proper test started to be considered where I was seen by a specialist and neurologist. Uh -huh. and I would, at one point I just came, I couldn't care for myself at all. The small things that you could do around the house, some things that we so much take for granted. Um, I was discriminated um, in so many different ways. People accused me of, of being on drugs. That was not the case. Um, I was abandoned by my family. I guess my ailment became so overwhelmed for them um, because when you see the movement, it was a scary movement. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I had no control over the movement. Mm -hmm. And so, and I was even discriminated by some of the professionals who supposed to actually know what this ailment is. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, a lot of um, things happened and I was able to overcome and start to educate. And, and it was because of lack of education. People are not aware of this type of um, ailment, yes, medical condition. Um, so it was always misdiagnosed and mis, um, misinterpreted. Okay. So I started educating people on what dystonia was. So I created name cards. I wore a medical medical alert bracelet. Um, I was even placed in nursing homes because I couldn't care for myself and my family couldn't care for me as well. Uh -huh. Every time I was in and out of the hospital, I was in and out of the hospital maybe four or five times out of the week where they even, um, because they misdiagnosed me trying to calm the movement down, they um, placed me in a mental health facility. And okay. because I started to, I, uh, the good thing in my defense, I started to reach out to a lot of professionals, but I still had some trust issues because I was uh, mishandled by so many people. Yes. Um, but I was able to be released. I spoke to therapists. I had to learn how to speak. I had my thought process. I had to learn how to work through this dystonia. Um, that's what it was called, this involuntary movement disorder. Um, okay, so, uh, and with all of these symptoms, how long were you all alone and suffering the, the uh, symptoms and repercussions from your 2005 diagnosis? About 10 years. Okay, about 10 years. About 10 years. And I want the audience to know, in this 10 years, she's in her 30s and 40s. So you're in nursing homes. And so I want to talk a little bit. I want to continue with all the symptoms because I don't think anybody can understand just how much you went through. So also, uh, with you losing your sight, your speech, your ability to walk, Something also happened to your heart. Will you tell us about that too and why this led to four heart surgeries? In 2007, I had transitioned to Minnesota to live with my brother. 
Um, so I started displaying um, difficulties breathing and I was still having the movement disorder. I would have them in my sleep. So it affects the left side and then it eventually moves all over the body. And the, the pressure that from the spasms, it was squeezing, it was um, squeezing the, the, the spasms led to the heart where it was spasm on the heart. And the spasms were intermediate, but sometimes they could be, they go from mild, moderate to severe. Mm-hmm. And so they watched me for a couple of years. I started displaying um, some challenges with breathing. So they placed me on, a, um, on oxygen that I had to carry with me. And then eventually my heart rate started fluctuating. They watched it for about a couple of months and my heart rate was too low. So they had to place a pacemaker in because my heart rate was too low. Mm-hmm. It was below, it was 50 and below. Okay. And I I, rec- I collapsed one day, I was out at the um, cardiologist and I collapsed one day and they had determined that my heart was, my heart rate was still too slow and I had to have a pacemaker to balance my, um, balance the rhythm of my heart rate out. Mm-hmm. And so all of this is going on. Are, are you having any contact with your mother at this time? Often, no, and not really. It wasn't consistent, no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you still were reaching out for her? For trying help. to reach out to her, say, Mom, help me. And um, trying to make sure that my daughter and now my granddaughter, okay, can somebody listen? Because no one, if something was, if I was supposed to pass away, no one knew what to do, what my wishes were. No one took that time, even as I tried to explain it and the doctor talked to me about, you need to have um, a, a power of attorney. You need to have someone here to make these medical decisions for you. And my mom and my sister, no one never came to my rescue. Yeah. And I know many times, and, and you've told me later after we reconnected, that they didn't think you were going to live. Yes especially after some of the heart surgeries, they were really preparing you and having you sign papers and you had no one to, to put the name. You didn't have anybody's name to put on the paper. You're right. The first surgery that I had, no one was there. I was in the room by myself. So as we were preparing, I remember telling the heart surgeon that if anything should happen to me, I recall writing a number that I could remember because I had lost my memory. So I was trying to gather all of my memory back. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a number on the paper and I told, I, I stated to the surgeon that if anything was supposed to happen to me, I don't, I didn't, you know, I didn't have much, but whatever it was that I had to give it to charity because I, I had no one to sign off or to make any decisions for me. Yeah, I didn't yeah. even know. And the sad thing about it was I didn't even know what type of burial I was going to have. I didn't even know what type of burial that um, no one even asked those questions about me having a burial. Mm-hmm. But um, and then I had to go back into um, another surgery right after. And my family was there when I woke up, but they still never showed any interest when they said they had, they had to take me back. No one still didn't show any interest that um, where is this papers if we need to make, if, if we need to make um, decisions for her. No one that still never asked. Yes. And the other question that they asked, well, where would you go to recuperate? They left you in the hospital mm-hmm. by yourself. It, and then you would have to find somewhere to go. And that's how you ended up in the nursing homes, right? Yes. I had to find somewhere to go. There were times that I, ha- I did have an apartment, 
but I didn't have anything in the apartment. I just basically had with it what came with the apartment. Mm-hmm. And I just tried to make do. But when I was released from the hospital, mm-hmm. I was on my own. I just had the healthcare providers that was there to help me make it through those first six or seven weeks after my release. But no yeah. one came to see me. Yes. And so as we move on to the to toward the end of the, I really want you to talk about um, you, you still have struggles. You still have struggles with some of the dystonia symptoms. You're doing a lot better. So I want you to talk about some of the positive things you're doing now. But since this is about narcissism and toxic relationships, I want you just to kind of brief us on where your relationship with your mother is now. I'm doing well. I was able to overcome all of those challenges. Um, My faith played a big part of it. Um, The challenges that I had, I was afraid to even return back to work. I don't, my symptoms are a lot better. I know what triggers them. I know when I have to take a break. Um, I know how to manage everything now. Mm -hmm. And so I'm doing well right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm doing great. Um, The relationship that I have with my mom is, um, it's still the same. I just, I guess, tolerate her. Because, uh-huh, that's a word. Yeah. Because, um, because, you know, she's my mom and, you know, we were always taught you should always honor your mother and your father and you should never go against what your parents say. And so, but the difference um, that I had to understand and learn for me to make it through this transition to move forward so I wouldn't hold on to that mm-hmm. was um, you can honor them as they're your parent but I don't have to respect them and I don't have to have you a part of my life if you're going to be hardship to me. You know, if you're going to continue so, to do harm. Continue, continue to do harm. Yeah. But, so I just, I think now if when my mom calls, say, oh, how you doing? I say hello. And I think all that comes along with, um, because I was able to forgive. Because mm-hmm. I had a hard time um, forgiving, mm-hmm. but I was able to forgive and I was able to move forward. And I think... Um, I'll never understand because she'll never accept responsibility to what happened. Yes. So I don't, I just, you know, I don't even talk about it. Um, cause there was a few things that she did just recently, but my aunt always stepped in to always be the person to care to make sure that I was okay. Mm-hmm. And give us something she just did recently to, cause I really want the, the audience to know from my perspective, from the doctors, rarely do they change their stripes um, it's like you heard her say she tolerates it. She hasn't changed, but she tolerates it. So give us a quick example of what she's done recently where your aunt had to step in. Um, my mom moved from a different state after the passing of her husband and she moved out here and it's been three years now and I don't even have my mom's address. Um, I went, I asked her, I said, um, mom, can I have your address? Uh, I was going to send you a birthday card. She said, send it to my aunt's house. So I said, okay. I never sent it to my aunt's house. I just said, if she doesn't feel I'm worthy enough to give Mm -hmm. me her home address to send her a birthday card, then I won't send one at all. So now I just kind of push her to the side to sometimes block her out. If she doesn't really, really exist, I don't need her approval. Um, And now it doesn't even matter what she says, what she says, um, about me or how she feel about me at this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I just now, I talk to her and I keep yeah. the conversation really brief. 
oh, hi, how you doing? I'm doing fine, you know, but nothing to the extreme. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I would never call her and ask her for anything. Right. And so um, I'm okay. You know, they still reach out to sometimes, um, like with my grandkids, uh-huh. sometimes her and my sister, I, I, I see that they now have the same type of behavior. Yes. So I just choose to distance myself um, from them. Yes. Well, you're doing a lot of positive things. You and I talk more. You and I um, have been around each other for a long time, even though we lost contact for a while. I want to say that I am so very proud of you. You're back in college. I know you're going to do well. Of course, you have the challenges like every college student. You will make it. Um, I'm so proud of the way you do speeches and you speak to those who are also suffering with dystonia. And then you work somewhere where you help children that are lost. And you don't have to give the name of the place, but just give us a brief. This is very positive because most of us are wounded helpers. So you went on to help others that don't have anywhere to stay without telling us the name of where you work. Just tell us just a brief synopsis of what you do. I work with them, young people between the ages of 16 and 24. And I do work with some um, young transitional veterans mm-hmm. um, that are at risk and that are job seeking, that struggle with substance abuse, violence, um, abandonment, anger issues. And it's, and I love it. It's very rewarding. Um, I love the population that I reach out to. And when I hear their stories of how, of how we can make it, and even with some students that circle with disabilities that are afraid to even talk about their, their disabilities, I'm able to encourage them to let them know that there are services available and you don't have to be afraid. Yes. Because I was there at one point. I was afraid to, uh, because what people would say, but yes. I turned it around. That's what keeps me going, Carol, to my faith. Because now um, I'm facing certain circumstances that happen while I'm at work. Like the kid that just committed suicide, jumped off a building. Mm-hmm. You know, when the kids say, Miss Green, how you feeling? I said, I'm not doing well. I'm sad. Yeah. And that is okay. He said, wow, thank you, Miss It was like it was a release that I'm not just saying, oh, I'm fine. Because no, I'm not fine. Right. And then you give permission for the kids to, to not push it down and they can be sad and you can be there to support them. Yes. Well, you're doing some good things now and I am so proud of you and I will be right here for you anytime. And I just want to thank you. Um, it takes a lot of courage and I keep telling my guests this to open up and, and show your weaknesses. Uh, I'm, I'm just so happy for your willingness to to tell us something that we might not have known. You know, there are people that are struggling and we're hoping to reach those people through this podcast. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, you can say goodbye to the audience now. Thank you for having me. Goodbye. Thank you all for listening. And for more information about narcissism, you can follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram. Until the next episode, stay safe and healthy. Bye-bye.